Hey everybody, welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite personalities from Magic the Gathering. I'm your host, James Sue. This is episode 49 with Marshall Sutcliffe. Marshall is the host of the Limited Resources podcast and the play-by-play commentator for the biggest magic events out there, including the Mythic Championships, the MPL Weeklies, and the Grand Prix. He's also the owner of the MTG Breakdown YouTube channel. In this episode, I sit down with Marshall to discuss his personal story and the circumstances in which Limited Resources was founded over a decade ago. Marshall also goes in-depth into what's worked for him over the years. So whether you are an aspiring content creator or just appreciate great magic content in general, it's a good listen. I hope you like it. But before we get into it, I want to mention our sponsors and give a few shoutouts. The music in this episode is brought to you by Kupla. Kupla is a supremely talented artist and his music has become part of my everyday listening rotation. Check out Kupla's latest album, Imaginary, on all the places you can find music, including SoundCloud and Spotify. Humans of Magic is sponsored by ChannelFireball.com. ChannelFireball is the place to go for all of your magic needs, with a huge selection of sealed product, singles, sleeves, accessories, and more. It's also home to some of the finest magic content on the internet. Find strategy articles and videos created by world-class talent like LSV, Andrea Mangucci, Pleasant Kenobi, and Paulo Vitor Damo de Rosa. You'll be informed, and you'll certainly be entertained. I've gotten to know the Channel Fireball team, and let me tell you, they truly love what they do. They have a fun, laid-back culture and some seriously awesome people. Please show them some love and visit ChannelFireball.com today. Humans of Magic is also sponsored by Cardboard Live. Cardboard Live transforms the way you interact with Magic broadcasts, complete with player decklists, real-time standings, metagame analysis, and more. You can find Cardboard Live on the biggest Magic live streams today, including the Star City Games Open Series, Magic's Mythic Championships, and the MPL Weeklies. And remember, you can use Cardboard Live for any live Magic stream, whether it's Magic Arena, Magic Online, or even your local paper tournament. It's easy to use and completely free. To get started, visit Cardboard.Live. Last but not least, I have an announcement to make. I'm working on the Humans of Magic book, which is a collection of interviews with the finest magic people on the planet. And when I say the finest people on the planet, I really do mean it. The book features John Finko, Jerry Thompson, Luis Scott Vargas, Emma Handy, and other excellent minds in the game. If that isn't enough to convince you, I don't know what will. It is an all-star lineup. The book ties together common themes from the original audio interviews and introduces new illustrations as well as other fun stuff. And as a thank you to listeners of the show, I'm giving away free copies of the book. To win a free copy, visit the Humans of Magic website at humansofmagic.com. Go there, join my mailing list, and you will be entered into the draw. It's that simple. All right, one more time in case you missed it. Humansofmagic.com. One word, humansofmagic.com. Make sure you go there, sign up for the mailing list, and you will be potentially one of the lucky winners of the upcoming book. Thank you so much. All right, let's get into it. This is Humans of Magic with Marshall Sutcliffe.
Hey, Marshall, how's it going? Whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, I had a pretty a pretty lazy day today. I'm uh, I'm in Seattle, Washington, where I live. I and where I grew up as well. So and I still live here. I never actually moved away. <laughs> I knew you were in Seattle on the West Coast, and I did not know if you moved there because of your career or because of some Wizards affiliation, or if it was just you're a native to Seattle. I guess I should say. Yeah, I w- I was born here, uh, born in Seattle, and I've lived here my whole life. So the proximity to Wizards of the Coast was a coincidence and a lucky one. Uh, you know, that has helped me out with the career that I've chosen just because I got to know some of the Wizards folks a little better. And then also the proximity to the actual building um, helps if they're doing, I mean, I've done charity stuff for them. I've done random streams down there that just, I, I mean, I know, hey, they like me. They'd like me to come down. But also it's like, well, he could just drive and doesn't need a hotel room. And that, that probably <laughs> didn't hurt, you know, for a little while either. I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, so it wasn't too far away. Oh, yeah, Vancouver's. I used to watch Mariners games and Sonics games in Seattle all the time. And so I know a little bit about Seattle. So where, whereabouts in Seattle? This might be like too insider maybe for some listeners, but I'm, I'm just curious. Okay, well, there's two things. I'll, I'll tell you where I live in a second. But the first one is you can't mention the Sonics around me like that, man. Like, <laughs> I'll, 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 start, I'll start crying over here or go off on some tirade. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm terrible what happens. It, man. Yeah. yeah, I still feel awful uh, <clears throat> about that. And I hope one day we get our Sonics back. I'll, I'll spare your listeners the drama. But, uh, but I do hope we get it back. Uh, I live downtown. So I live um, right, right downtown Seattle. And that way I actually – uh, lived about 10 or 11 miles north of Seattle in a city called Edmonds uh, for, for quite a while. Um, I have a, I, I bought a condo out there. Um, but when I started really ramping up the coverage stuff, uh, getting to the airport uh, ended up being really, really annoying. Like, you know, a couple of hours in the car potentially, but sometimes only 35 minutes and then parking off off-site parking at the airport and all this stuff for my job. And so I, I really thought at some point, okay, I need to get closer. And, and, you know, they built a light rail. We have one train in Seattle and it goes to the airport. And so I moved down to where I could get closer to the train and I can just walk with my bags and then take a train that costs like three bucks and, you know, takes a little over half an hour to get to the airport. And it's just stress-free now. Yeah, I've done that train before and it, it mm-hmm. is quite good. But I, I realized that as someone who such as yourself, who grew up in Seattle, like it wasn't always there, right? So, you know, no. the last couple of years I, I had, I was fortunate to, to see that. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. Uh, we've, we've had, I mean, Seattle as a city has changed dramatically, you know, over, it, it's changed a lot ever since I was around. Uh, we had a big, big influx of people from out of state when I was young, and then it kind of calmed down, and then Amazon and Microsoft and everything kind of blew up here. So now Seattle's just uh, completely different from when I grew up. But one of the cool things we got is the train. and <laughs> I'm taking full advantage of it. That's great. And uh, I thought I, maybe I would just first start off by asking you. So, you know, you're so well known for limited resources and the podcast that you do together with Luis. But I was trying to do some research on you and it's actually kind of challenging. Like you're involved in a lot of things and you had just touched on some of them. I'm just wondering, like, what are all the things that keep you busy right now? I know it's kind of a broad question, but I I really wanted to kind of make sure that myself and also the listeners get to, you know, understand Marshall, like maybe not just as limited resources, but all the things that have been on your plate as of late. Yeah, yeah, I've got a lot. Um, so yeah, LR is the thing that I do the most consistently. It's every single week. I don't miss weeks of that show. I love doing it. 
Uh, and that's part of the reason why, but also I just feel a commitment to my listener base, you know, that, uh, way back when we first started the show, I recognized early that one of the key ingredients to having a successful podcast is consistency. It's also one of the hardest things to do. Uh, you know, everybody has a good podcast idea in them for the first day, 10 to 15 episodes. It's, it's after that when you kind of are looking at a blank sheet and going, well, what are we going to talk about now? Uh, after we've kind of got all the good ideas out the door that things get really difficult. And then you fast forward two years and all of a sudden you're like, okay, you, you really need a, a bunch of kind of systems in place and things like that. So that, that to me is, is kind of my number one thing is, is LR every week, like I said. And then the stuff that comes around it is interesting because, uh, it's, it's sort of the, the life of a contractor, a freelancer, if you will, where it comes and goes, it's not that consistent. Um, things like coverage, right? Like coverage is, a big part of my my career now doing I used to do Grand Prix coverage and Pro Tour coverage now Grand Prix coverage is effectively gone although Channel Fireball did pick up a few of those uh but that was a big source of my my income frankly and also just my workload um that just disappeared kind of overnight and then um now it's Mythic Championships and Invitationals and MPL Weekly events and a few GPs here and there so it's a whole different uh, outlook, but that takes up a lot of my efforts and time as well. Uh, and then I also do a bunch of other random stuff uh, for Channel Fireball, for example, who sponsors the podcast. Uh, they also I also do draft videos for them. So I have my own little channel over there called Channel Marshall, and I do draft videos. Um, so during the day or during the week, I'm doing those. Uh, I also write articles uh, for Wizards of the Coast for Daily MTG. I'll often write the the draft primer, uh, articles, that kind of thing. And then I also end up doing kind of in-betweener stuff like for not, for not for the last couple of months, but before that, for about six months, I was doing streaming for Wizards of the Coast on their channel. That was super fun, but that was kind of a temporary six month contract type thing. Uh, but I was actually really bummed when it ended because, uh, I really enjoyed doing it in that context. Uh, I do actually technically have my own stream though. It's been dormant for quite a while. I have really struggled with finding a way to fit that into my life and my schedule and kind of my ideals or whatever. Uh, so I don't do that regularly, but that's something that I always kind of have on the back burner. And then I'll pick up other jobs too for coverage stuff like the magic online championship or doing a super league or something like that here and there as well. And that I think is it. <laughs> oh no, that's not it at all. I have the YouTube channel. <laughs> I, I also have the MTG breakdown YouTube channel uh, that I started about a year and a half ago. Um, and I, I edit videos and do videos for that as well, though that also uh, has been undergoing a pretty significant change with the coverage changes because a lot of the types of videos that I was trying to make were kind of uh, reliant on me being around professional players uh, physically and then also traveling a lot. And uh, th that was primarily made up with my GP coverage, which is basically gone now. So I'm trying to rethink what I want to do with the uh, Breakdown YouTube channel because I, I just don't have access to the same stuff that I did before. Yeah. And from our earlier conversations, you also do all of the editing of LR yourself. Is that right? Yeah, I do. Well, I, I do all the editing of everything I do myself. Uh, it's probably a weakness at this point. Like there was probably a point in my career where that was one of my strengths where I was willing to like where, where I was unwilling to offload work. Uh, and that was basically because I just didn't trust that somebody else would do it to the level that I wanted it to be at, even though there's clearly people that could do a better job, you know, than I can, but I probably couldn't afford them. <laughs> so I figured I'll just do it myself. 
Uh, and I also, I'm a pretty independent person. I like to learn how to do things myself anyway. Uh, I enjoy that process. I enjoy learning and improving at things. So that's kind of part of it when it's practical to do so. Um, and so, yeah, for every video, uh, on breakdown for every episode of LR, everything I've ever done, I have done it all myself. Uh, it's just kind of how I roll at this point, but it does offer a bit of a limitation if, if I really wanted to grow out, uh, another property, if you will, that wasn't necessarily based around me doing it hands-on, I would certainly, uh, have to, have to have a change of heart on that. Right. It, it's definitely challenging. And just by what you had listed, it, it already sounds like quite a lot. So my next question would be, how do you, I mean, you had mentioned systems and processes, but are, are there certain things that you, you actively try to do to make sure that you're on top of all these different things that are going on? I mean, you had mentioned consistency, you know, for something like LR, but like, how do you manage all that? Is there some process that you, you have? Yeah, th there's a, it's kind of a combination of two things. One of them I'm think I'm pretty good at. And the other one I'm not, uh, the one I'm not good at is the stuff that most frankly, most magic players like, like me and, and people like me aren't great at, which is, you know, staying fully organized and staying on top of all these things and, you know, hitting deadlines and not procrastinating and all these, these human kind of things that pop up all the time. And I've gotten a lot better at it. I think I'm fine. Like I don't put myself into some like really low bracket for that. Although I was when I was in school. Uh, but, but now I'm like, I'm fine. I get stuff done in a reasonable clip, but I'm not great at that part. The part that I think is a strength of mine, though, is I think I understand uh, like sustainability with these things well, meaning when I want to start something new or at all um, that I know I'm going to be doing over and over and over again, I really take the time up front to put the effort into figuring out the best way to do this going forward. Uh, and I can give you an example. Uh, when we first started um, Limited Resources podcast, uh, I had I was I started it with my friend Ryan Spain, and him and I got together and we were mapping out what we wanted the show to be. Right? What, how often? What were we going to hit? What were we going to talk about? How long would the show go for? How many people were we going to have guests? No guests. We even talked about things like should we swear? Like you know should this be a show where we speak exactly how we would if we were sitting around the poker table just you know, having a chat or is, or do we want to limit that so that we can open up the audience a little further? What do we give up by doing that? You know, we, we went into all these type of details about it, but one of the key things that we came up with, and this was something that I, I said, and I'm glad I did is Ryan at the time lived about seven or eight miles from me. So close, right? I mean, drivable, no problem. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it, could, it would be easy, but what I insisted on is I said, but we're going to do the show over Skype. And the reason that I said that is because you know that even if it is just a, you know, a 15 minute drive or whatever, something's going to come up, right? I got stuck in traffic. My car broke. I couldn't make it. I'm running home late from work. I, you know, I got, I've got people over tonight and I can't, I can't get it, you know, just something that is going to stop us from delivering a show for a week is going to happen. And if we do the show over Skype, we can eliminate at least some of those possibilities, even though we lived close, right? I, we could have easily just said, all right, my house or your house tonight and just, and just done that. And, uh, you know, that was me trying to like flex a muscle that I didn't, hadn't really developed quite yet. Um, but would later of saying, 
well, what is the best way to make sure that we get this show out the door every single week? And I'm not talking about the next three weeks. I mean, you know, a year from now that we're still doing this. And in my mind, it was to reduce as much friction as possible as far as actually getting to the recording, you know. And so that's the kind of thing that I like to do for all of the stuff that I do for the for the videos on YouTube and all that kind of stuff is when I sit down, I think, OK, I'm going to conceptualize what this video is going to look like at the end. But how am I going to get from point A to point B where I don't get stuck? And I know the kind of things that make me stuck. And it's usually if um, if I don't fully understand how the thing works and I have to like come at it and solve that problem again and again and again, at some point it becomes a roadblock. Well, I'll just start procrastinating and be like, yeah, I need to figure that out. But then I, I don't. So what I like, for example, on one of my types of videos that I use on breakdown, I actually have a uh, I have a. a document that I made that just breaks down how I make it. And that way, if I ever get stuck on anything, I just go look at it <laughs> because, you know, sometimes it, it can be a month in between making that type of video or whatever. And I'm big on that. I, I guess I'm, I'm a process person. I don't really know if that, if that's the right term for it, but I definitely put myself in the camp of, of people who really, really, uh, value getting things put in place first so that you can give yourself at least the chance at the at success long term because there's so many things that can throw these type of things off anyway i figure if i can reduce them on my end it's probably prudent yeah i i definitely would call it process oriented and just having mm -hmm. a framework it sounds like is really really yeah. important and it's been a big part of your success i might say yeah i think so too i mean we you know luis and i will uh, revisit things on the show from time to time to make sure that we're not just stuck in a rut or not, you know, looking at something from a different direction or a different angle. Um, but that being said, we also both feel that like the way we do it is, you know, pretty close to optimal, like the way we want it to be. So at this point, like to use LR as an example, we're just kind of turning the knobs, you know, just tweak this here, add a little thing here, but we're not trying to like, you know, blow up the show and, and go, Oh, we've been doing it wrong the whole time and, you know, rethink it foundationally. It's, it's just more of a, a tweaking type thing. But when I start something new, I do view it that way, like foundationally speaking. Now, what do you think led you to become more effective or process oriented in the projects that you start? Hmm. I have no idea. I, I wasn't like this in school. I wasn't, <clears throat> I, I sucked at being organized or doing any of that kind of stuff. Um, when, when I was working, at like a grocery store. I didn't really need that. When I worked in a corporate setting, I probably should have done that, but didn't. <laughs> it was, yeah. it was really only, I think, uh, when it was on me, you know, I, it, I probably actually, that's probably exactly what it was now that I think about it. It was probably just fear. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, when, when you're working for yourself, when you don't have a boss, when you don't have a guaranteed income, when, when it's just, Hey, if you do well at this, then you can keep paying your rent. And if you don't, you got to find a different job or do something else. It's very motivational, right? It just says, well, look, if that's the case, I'm going to take my time to do this right. I'm going to set this thing out and I'm going to make sure that I can give it the best shot possible. Uh, you know, because if I don't, it could put me in a bad situation. Like I, you know, I could really find myself, you know, applying for, for a job like I had before, which I, I don't want to do. Um, so I mean, I probably could have done this at different times in my life, but I just didn't have the motivation uh, to do so because I wasn't, you know, working on my working for myself. So it sounds like it's just taking your responsibility or your life into your own hands, as it were, and just like because yeah. I think that is something that's very intimidating for people who are 
independent or working for themselves. But it's also sort of liberating as I've started to discover on my on my end. It's just like there's no there's really no uh, to excuse my language. Like there's no bullshitting or hiding behind like reasons for why something doesn't work. Like something either works or yep. it doesn't. And I think the world yep. is actually quite fair in determining if your stuff is good or not. You know what I mean? Oh, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that if you if you think differently, like if you think that it was unfair that the thing that you made didn't work or that somebody else's thing that you think is worse than yours did work, you're probably wrong. Like it's it's probably like you're not looking at it like it it it, it is almost impossible, at least in the world that we live in, the content production world for you to make great stuff consistently over time and not find an audience. That's just, I've never, ever, ever, ever seen that happen. Yeah. Sometimes it can go a little slower than some people would prefer. Or, you know, sometimes you're like, why is this person still only have this many followers? They're great. They're doing this great stuff, but there always comes this tipping point where they get pushed over the edge and then they become, you know, like a big deal or a, a you know, an accepted person in a community or a creator or whatever. Uh, and if, if that never happens and you have done it right in which again is in my mind, a pretty simple formula of doing really great stuff and then just doing it consistently. Uh, I, you know, you're either not doing it consistently or your stuff isn't hitting the the audience that like you thought it would. Right. I, I definitely believe that too. I think consistency is so, so big. And, you know, I did a separate interview with LSV and he, he said exactly the same thing, you know, like you, you can have a great idea but can you do it for a whole year? Can you do it every week or every or a couple times a week, right? Like everybody has a great idea. I actually think of this not just for podcasts, but just any project or any even a startup, right? Like can you can you consistently grind? I think that's a that that really separates people like in terms of doing well and not doing well. Yeah, it really does. And if you look at the people maybe that you look up to or that that you want to emulate, you'll often find that their story didn't start when you found them, right? Like you, you can find your, your favorite YouTuber or something and go all the way back to their first videos and you'll be like, wow, th they were making videos for five years when I found them and I've been following them for five years. Like what happened there? And you'll notice that for the first three years, they didn't really do like they weren't popular or they didn't reach success or even the quality level that they wanted, but they just kept doing it over and over and over and over and over. And it just became this sort of grindy part of their life. But then eventually you can build it up. And I mean, I'll be honest with you. I learned this lesson uh, from seeing what I thought and, and still do was mediocre content getting good reception, right? Get you like, I was like, how, how is this stuff popular? Like, this is not good, right? Mm -hmm. This is like medium level, you know, kind of low effort. It's here. It's fine. I can kind of see what you were doing, but you really didn't put the effort in. It's not really professionally done. Like what is going on here? And then you look and the people have been around for 10 years and they've built up an okay audience. Now, if their stuff was great, their audience would have been huge by that time. But as it turns out, their stuff was just okay. And I thought to myself, you know, like, wow, if you can just really, you know, like the consistency actually makes up for so much of it that if you can just add in good or hopefully sometimes great content, then you're really going to be, you know, set up for success if, if you can keep that consistency going. Yeah, absolutely. It's super hard, though. 
Yeah, definitely easier said than done. And uh, <laughs> I, I think one of the things in life, really, and this is maybe getting a little bit too philosophical, is just that like time addresses a lot of things. And I think consistency of output plays into that. I think there's, <laughs> a, there's a joke that Louis C.K. made once about how, you know, like a 60-year-old janitor, I'm paraphrasing, but a 60-year-old janitor is going to be wiser than a 20-year-old who knows everything or thinks he or she knows everything it's just mm -hmm. that's just life you know yep it is you the, and these things are very real uh, that that's one of the things that i've tried to do that i often see people not do and i, and I think it's really benefited me throughout the course of my life not just with uh, content production or any, any magic related stuff but just in general which is like you can learn from other people's mistakes and i just I just don't think people do. I, I, I just see people go, wow, that sucks. That guy ended up in jail or, you know, he's a drug addict now or he died or, you know, just some tragedy befalls somebody. But then you just kind of go, oh, well, you know, and just move on with your life. But it's like, well, what actually happened to this person? Right. Because it's just so hard to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and like actually see that. But I mean, there's these cliches, right? All the time. You see them all the time. Everybody that screws up bad always says the same stuff. They always say, I wish I could go back and talk to myself when I was younger, or I wish I just would have not been so stupid, right? Like I'm in jail now. And the reason I am is because I got into this car with my sketchy friends who were doing some, you know, illegal stuff or whatever. And I just knew better. I just didn't do it. And now I'm in jail, right? And it's like shrug, you know, there goes a big chunk of my life. And it's like, for me, you know, maybe not something quite that serious, you know, but I do look at other people and I just say, well, this didn't work out for you. What actually happened? You know, and I and I feel like, you know, you get cliched advice a lot of times, especially from older people, but just kind of all over the place about things. But you know what? That advice is good. Like if you can just separate out the sort of eye roll that comes with it and actually follow it, it actually works really well. And it's like, oh, this advice is everywhere and it's not even complicated. You know, but it's just hard to pick up because we get inundated with it. I mean, people of my generation, you know, you get told this stuff since you're a little kid and it just never goes away. And at some point, you know, you just sort of roll your eyes and go like, yeah, I know I need to go to college and then I can get a good job. I've heard you say it, you know, a thousand times. <laughs> and it's like, you know, but like it took for me until I got to, you know, a better place career wise to go. All these people have college degrees. Like I thought when I got into that world that it was going to be all like really smart people and all this stuff. And they weren't, they were just normal people, but they just happened to have gone to college as well and, and gotten a degree. And then that kind of was really eye opening for me, you know, personally. Yeah. And I think having that awareness and under seeing these things in the world and then realizing that you have agency over what you can do and not just kind of see yourself as a victim or a powerless. I think that's a big part of it as well. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. So, Marshall, I like to roll back the, the clock a little bit. And I, one thing I always like to do is ask my guests sort of their, their backgrounds. And, you know, obviously you're very, very well known for the content that you put out. But when people see you as a commentator or as the co-host of LR, they may not know so much about your, your past. And I think we're touching on a little bit of it here. So I would kind of love to, you know, you had mentioned that you grew up in Seattle, but maybe take me through sort of your early years and, you know, maybe your family and, you know, all the circumstances mm -hmm. in which you, you grew up in, maybe even before you found magic, just kind of tell me whatever you like about, about the past. Okay. Uh, well, I was born in Seattle and, uh, 
And then uh, I lived in Seattle for a little while and then uh, when I was a baby and then my parents moved out about mm, just like to the suburbs of Seattle basically. And, uh, and I grew up there until I was about 10 and I guess it was like a normal middle-ish class upbringing. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I can't remember that much of it, but it seemed fine. And then, uh, but when I was 10, my parents ended up getting a divorce and that kind of changed everything. Primarily for me, uh, it changed my economic stance. I, we, we were just basically poor after that. And so that was totally different lifestyle than having two parents in the house versus one. And my mom, who, who is just a absolutely incredible person, she, you know, she was doing like, uh, kind of half jobs. Like she was doing like, uh, uh, daycare out of the house, you know, but not like a full on business, just like there was five or six kids in the neighborhood that needed to be taken care of. And so she would get some money for that. And she worked like a few retail jobs and stuff like that just to get a little extra money here and there. But she had never had like a real career or anything close to it. And all of a sudden she needed to get out and get like a real job and try to do everything she could. And she did. It was uh, like I said, she's just an amazing person. And she did that and and she raised me and my sister. But it was tough. We just really didn't have uh, much means to work with there. Um, And then. But she did it and she got us through it and and managed to kind of keep that that pressure off of me and my sister. I, I think I realized a lot of this stuff in retrospect, uh, you know, after having kind of grown up a bit and looked back and been like, wow, like we got help. Like people brought us like I remember some lady came and gave us money, gave my mom money for Christmas presents because she didn't have any one year. And, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, stuff that I couldn't get or didn't have and was just like, oh, well, I guess I just don't have it. Um, but didn't really recognize that, like how much that was a struggle, you know, for my mom. And when I was about 16, uh, she married my stepdad. She met and then married my stepdad. Uh, they're still married now. And, uh, and we moved and this was a kind of a big moment for me because I was, uh, going to be a junior in high school and I had grown up you know, in the North Seattle area my whole life and then gone. And we moved about 40 or 45 miles away, um, to a city called Lake Stevens out in, in Washington here, but it's far out and it's a totally different, totally different, uh, upbringing. I, I, you know, I grew up listening to hip hop and, you know, playing basketball and, you know, that kind of stuff. And out there it was all trucks and country music and stuff like that. And it felt totally different. Yeah. And your friends all changed. You're displaced, right? Yeah, totally. I had I didn't know a single person up there at all. Um, and I did have one thing though, that, that helped me out a lot with that transition, uh, which was basketball. Uh, and basketball is kind of my first true passion and still is. I, I play three times a week t- to this day. Um, and in fact, I'm playing tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> kind of stoked about it. Yeah, uh, I got that also game. makes me now regret talking about this team that I yeah. should not name that used to be in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good. That's better that you do it that way. You, you'll keep my blood pressure down <laughs> doing that. But anyway, um, and I, I tried out for the, uh, basketball team up there and I didn't really have a lot of organized play experience at the time, but I was tall and I could shoot pretty good and they saw something, there. So they, they took me on the team and I, I was really actually quite lucky, uh, to make the team. They were just kind of taking the shot on the new guy. But the truth is, is that it was an extremely competitive athletic school. Uh, the situation was such that we had way too many kids for how big the school was. 
And uh, just a few years after I graduated, they bumped it up to the next division. But at the time, we were like an oversized school for what we had. And what that meant was getting on one of the sports teams was really, really difficult uh, because it was a heavily sports-influenced city because there just was nothing going on there. It's just, you know, it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So it was, uh, at least at the time, now there's now it's actually quite a bit going what on. What position right? did you play in high school? I played forward. Yeah. So the three, the small forward. But that was a weird thing because I'm like 6'5", so um, that, that, that normally I would play center, especially in those days. Um, so they kind of wanted me to do that, but then they realized that I could shoot a bit. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, it, it ended up kind of paving the way, and it showed me a lot, actually. Um, I mean, not only did I get the, the really good things that you get from participating in a team sport and like the pressure of it, the teamwork, the, the hard work, the constant practicing, the pushing yourself and all that kind of stuff – that comes, you know, if you just play on any team sport at that level. Um, but beyond that, I also got to see a really interesting kind of one-two punch for social, like as a social setting thing. Because when I got there, I didn't know anybody. And I'm just like pretty normal dude, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was definitely not one of the cool kids, but I wasn't like completely nerdy, even though I actually was. I just like maybe pretended better that I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, but you know, I made a few friends and, and whatever, but I, I really didn't have like a social circle or anything to lean back on and nobody knew who I was. They didn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I made the basketball team and next thing you know, uh, I'm being treated as if I'm one of the cool kids. I'm getting invited to stuff that I wasn't, wouldn't have gotten invited to otherwise. And people would say hi to me and, you know, say that I did something good or whatever. And I remember I'm really lucky, I think, because I was prescient enough at that age to recognize the falseness in that, right? I I didn't just jump in and go, all right, well, I guess I'm just one of the cool kids now. I thought, wait a minute. Last week, you didn't know who the hell I was. And now you, you are saying hi to me or being nice to me because you think I'm one of the cool kids, but I'm not. I'm really not. Like, I don't know any of these people. I don't do the things that they do. Uh, I, I, you know, would hang out with them occasionally, but like, I just was not part of that crowd, you know, and I just wasn't a cool kid. And so it was really interesting because the rest of my high school life was this sort of dual, dual life where I was treated sometimes, uh, you know, one way, but I didn't feel like I was actually that way. And so that, that taught me a lot, I think about, you know, how to treat people and how perception matters and what's real. Um, you know, when it comes to interacting with other people and, uh, you know, it prepares you for things down the road somehow, like, uh, you know, getting to the place where I am now in magic, uh, I was able to handle it a lot better because I know who I am and I know what I am and all that kind of stuff. And I, I don't let other people define that for me. And I, I, and I somehow figured out not to do it there as well. Did you have a good, uh, relationship with your basketball coach? Yeah. I mean, he was, he was a hard ass. <laughs> his name is, it, it, it was funny because we just called him coach. Um, but his name, his first name was Norm and we, um, he was an extremely strict traditional guy. Uh, we had to wear suits on game day, like no messing around, no nonsense. He was very intense guy and a very good coach. And, uh, but we all called him Norm behind his back. <laughs> <laughs> but but definitely we, not, not in front of him, right? That would just no, not be good. No, coach or Mr. Lowry. Yeah, we, we were, we would never, uh, never even consider, uh, letting him hear that <laughs> outside of it. But he had a big impact on me. You know, I mean, after my parents got a divorce, my dad was certainly around, but not, 
you know, it was, I would see him on some weekends or something like that. I didn't really have that strong guiding force. And, uh, and while my coach didn't replace that, he, I wasn't around him enough for that to be the case. He at least gave me a glimpse of what it's like to be really disciplined and just say, no, we're really going to care about this. Like we're going to really sacrifice and give our bodies, our minds, and our time to this goal of being a great basketball team. And we actually were, we, we actually ended up being a very, very good team. Uh, we were ranked seventh in the state when we went into the state tournament. Um, we didn't end up doing very well there, but like, you know, it felt like an accomplishment. I mean, it's the first time I had ever been a part of anything, you know, that felt important to me, you know, on that level. That's great. And did you have a favorite subject or favorite teachers in high school? Um, well, I sucked at school for starters. I'm, I'm that classic. It, you'll find this so often with uh, magic players and, and also poker players if, if you come across them. But I was the like never did his homework um, but just went to class and could do get like a B plus or an A minus on the test just from having been in class. You, you knew enough to not flunk the class, but you you could you knew the minimum bar needed kind of thing, right? Yep, exactly. And I and I would do like the least amount of work overall possible, really, to do anything. Um, which I don't know. I just I wasn't super motivated. Uh, I didn't really have a pathway set aside. I had no expectations. My parents weren't the type of people to put expectations on me. I think they could have maybe put a little more on me and maybe I could have, uh, you know, had a different path there, but they were more of the kind of, as long as you're a good person, you know, we'll love you and you're, you, you, you can figure out what you want to do with your life type thing rather than saying, well, we're, you're definitely going to college and then here's your three career opportunities. You know, you're either going to be a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, dentist or something. Um, instead they were quite on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, of that. So I, you know, I was like, well, I go to school and I do stuff, but I mean, I, I always sucked at doing homework. I didn't like to do it. And I was also terrible at it. Uh, I think I have ADD. I went to a therapist once and she told me that, that I did. Um, but also that it was like nothing severe or whatever. So I don't know. I don't really understand how that part, how that works exactly. I read some stuff on it, but a lot of the symptoms were also just like, I just don't want to do this. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I don't know if it's some, that's a valid symptom, but, I think, but I'll life. tell you what, I was never good at it. Whatever the reasoning is, I was never good at doing that. Stuff. Right. Um, I, but, but I love, I, I have a voracious appetite for knowledge. I read, uh, the internet, like I've probably read more pages of Wikipedia than most, <laughs> you know, I just go on those <laughs> rabbit holes. Yeah. You can get lost in there for sure. You can. Yeah. I'm eternally curious. I think it's, it's, uh, one, I think it's a defining characteristic of me. Uh, I think it, I've leveraged that in all the work that I've done. I'm genuinely curious about almost everything. Uh, I can sit and talk to people that know a lot about a thing, almost regardless of what that thing actually is. Um, and so that helped me too, because I was always into, uh, science or any type of thing like that at school. Um, those are the subjects that I, that I really liked logic. Um, I remember I took that at college and I really, really liked that class too. It just clicked with me. Uh, you know, it made sense to me. So those are the type of subjects that I like. Right. So after high school, you went to, to college and kind of walk me through that. Where did you go and what did you study? So I went to a community college, um, kind of in between where I ended up going to high school and, oh, I should tell you this too, just cause your listeners will get a kick out of it. I, I went to high school with Chris Pratt. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. It's funny. He, it, I, I remember him, he was one year behind me, 
but he was on the wrestling team and I was on the basketball team and those are both winter sports. So we would have practice at the same time and all that kind of stuff. And I wasn't friends with him or anything, but I remember him. He had a brother too. And, uh, he, he was just a goofball. Like, okay. Was I was going to ask, he was a jokester, right? Just naturally. Yeah, totally. A hundred percent. Like that's like, I remember when I saw him on TV and I'm like, dude, is that Chris Pratt? And I looked, I'm like, oh, good for him. You know, he's on parks and rec. And then all of a sudden he's on like Jurassic park and guardians. Of the I'm like, what yeah. is going on? Like that guy's a goofball, like a hundred percent dork, you know, yeah. just like a classic funny, but goofy, nice guy. And I, you know, but whatever. Anyway, I, I had to mention that just cause it's, uh, it's just funny to see him have such absurd levels of success, but I'm obviously super happy for him. He was always a really nice guy. I, I, I remember nothing but nice things about him. So good for him. Cool. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I went to a community college in between, uh, because that's what I could afford. Uh, I was working at a grocery store right out of high school and, uh, yeah. And so I did, I did two years of that and got my two year degree, um, from that. And then I kind of just got stuck. I was like, well, I can't afford to, to transfer to a university cause I was working at a grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really understand how student loans would work uh, or if that was something that I could even get. Maybe that was a good thing in retrospect. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now looking back, it is funny how things worked out for me because that's where I ended up stopping school. I never finished. Uh, I kind of told myself that I would, but never really found the, the motivation or the money or the reasoning necessarily to do so. Um, and I just worked at the grocery store, uh, for, as a checker for, and then eventually I drove uh, a truck for them for a while too. Mm -hmm. Um, for like six or seven years, you know, I was like in my mid twenties and I was still working there. Um, and I had started kind of poking around looking for something else because I knew I didn't want to do that forever, but I actually liked it. Um, it taught me a lot about interacting with people and stuff because it's weird because it, at heart, I'm actually really shy. <laughs> it's weird because I talk for a living and I'm in front of a camera and all this stuff, but I actually just don't like, like when everybody, when somebody knocks at my door, I just want to go hide in the laundry room or whatever. <laughs> like I don't want to go answer it. Yeah. I don't like it when I don't like calling people that I don't know on the phone. I don't like it when they call me. Uh, I feel weird about all of those type of things. If you put me in a room with people, um, I just won't talk until unless there's people that I know and then I'll talk nonstop. Or if somebody is saying something that I find interesting, then I'll ask questions. Like I said, going back to that curiosity thing. But my natural state is is to not talk uh, or to just sort of keep to myself. Um, but when you work at a store, you can't, right? You have to talk with customers all day. And that kind of got me good at that. Like now mm-hmm. I can, I can talk to anybody for a short period of time like that. Like I would be there because I just did it, but it was cause I also did it for real. Like I wasn't faking it. I wasn't like, hello ma'am, how are you today? And like, Oh, I learned how to do this. I just learned how to access that part of my personality that is open to people, you know, even if I don't know them. And then, you know, I got a bunch of regular customers that would always come through my line and then I would chat, chat with them and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, uh, then uh, I ended up uh, a while later getting a job uh, through a friend of mine named Daniel, one of my best friends. He got me a job where he worked, which was at AT&T. And he worked on uh, the AT&T.com website, which at the time was like a top five website by size in the world. And um, I ended up uh, getting hired th- thanks to him, basically. I mean, he, he got me the interview, you know, and said, I think this guy would be a good fit. 
And then I was like, all right, I'm going to kill this. Like I got a book. I read about how to do the job that we were doing. I, I did everything I could to make sure that I put myself in the best position possible because I recognized that this could be a career change for me that I could leave the grocery store behind. I was ready to do so at that time mm -hmm. and perhaps get, you know, what I considered air quotes, a real job. And, uh, and that's exactly what happened. I interviewed and they hired me as a contractor. I worked as a contractor for a year, year and a half. Uh, and then they converted me to a full-time employee there. And I worked there for about six or seven years. What'd you work on? Was it the AT&T website as well? Just like Daniel? Yeah, I was on his team at first and then we were kind of split a little later. But yeah, I was doing um, – so you know how websites keep analytics, right? Like they they track how customers use their site when they leave, what they click on, what they don't click on. Uh, I was um, responsible to make sure that those analytics were coming in correctly. Mm. So we would do what people call A-B testing. I'm sure you know about all this stuff, James. But uh, you know that's where you're presented – for example, with a page, but there's two different versions of it. So half of the customers see version A and half of the customers see version B. And then we gather data about it to see how the customers interact or if the conversion rate is slightly higher on one of the pages or the other. And then the business people, people on the team would evaluate that information and then decide which one would actually end up being the one that was in production that they used as the actual page. But the problem is, is that, or the problem I was solving is that you have to have a kind of a human component to understand a use case is what we called it. So like I'm a customer who wants to upgrade their phone, right? What does that customer do? How do they interact with the site and where are the sticking points? And so I needed to make sure that I understood what that, how that customer would act as a customer and then how we were gathering the information about how they acted so that it could be presented in a way that the business people could make decisions on it. So it was pretty nitty gritty, you know, it was the back end of a website and I was digging around in there making sure that these click impressions were coming through and all these, you know, terrible terms that I've hopefully purged from my brain uh, <laughs> by, by this point. But yeah, so that's what I did for them. Yeah, sorry to make you revisit some of this stuff, but it, it is really interesting how you found yourself in this role and it must not have been easy, right? Initially to sort of get up to speed on everything, I would imagine. No, it was hard. Um, I'm lucky I learned pretty quickly and I had my friend Daniel there to kind of any questions I had, I could go to him. He had been doing this for a few years already. Um, I read a couple of books. I really threw myself into it. I mean, I, look, I viewed this as an opportunity that was not missable, right? Because mm -hmm. I just, you know, I mean, like I guess I had a two-year degree, but they wanted a four, you know, so they were giving me a shot, right? Mm -hmm. And I just looked at it like I cannot miss on this shot. Like, even if I don't end up staying here, if I can get myself uh, a year or two under, you know, under my belt and I can go, okay, I've got that on my resume now. Now I can say that I do this for a living. You know, I, I can now I can start to parlay that into other things and get a foothold on, like I said, what, what I consider to be a real job versus the job that I had uh, at, at the grocery store. So I took it really seriously for the first two to three years of to really try to try my best to make sure that I was doing everything correctly. And I never said no. You know, I kind of tried to make myself indispensable to my manager and all that kind of stuff, too. It sounds like in your mind there was not a a plan B, like, okay, like, I'm not going to be cut out for this. It was just like, I'm going to find a way to make it work, right? That is exactly right. Yeah. I mean, and like, just my family history, you know, my, my dad was a mechanic, an auto mechanic. I told you my mom, you know, worked, you know, uh, various kind of jobs. jobs yeah. 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 
and like, I mean, that's my grandpa was a mechanic. Both of my uncles are mechanics. Like the, my family is not, we don't come from like a family of professionals. Like none of them have college degrees. That's just not how we, you know, I'm not saying nobody in my family, but the people I just listed, you know, who are my closer relatives, none of them had college degrees. It just wasn't really kind of how my family was, you know? So this was to me overachieving, right? Like I, I had, I mean, I was going to make more money at, there than in my parents did. Right. It's like, that's a weird moment already. Right. Because yeah, it's this a was big like thing. A good. Yeah. Yeah good corporate job, you know? Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, this was something that I had absolutely no option on, on messing up. I just, even if I hated it, I was going to do it for at least a while and see if I could parlay it into something else. Yeah. So you did it for a while. And then what happened after that? Well, I got completely sick of it. I mean, it, it's so brutal, man. You're just, you're sitting in a cubicle and I really struggled with it because I felt I don't know what the term is. It's kind of like survivor's guilt or something where I, I had something that I should have valued. I mean, my family was happy for me that I'd gotten this job. And like, I felt super lucky um, that I had gotten to that point and was able to capitalize. Yeah, on it's it. pretty stable, right? You kind of it may not be the most exciting thing, but it's stable. It beats working in a grocery store, right? Exactly. And like it paid well and I had benefits and like it was just this great opportunity, but I hated it. Like, I just couldn't lie to myself and say, it's fine. You know, at first I did, honestly. I just said, well, it's work, right? I'll save the things that I care about for after work. And when I go to work, it wasn't a particularly hard job at some point either. So I was like, I, I just, you just put in your hours and you go home and then you do the things you want to do. You know, people have been doing that for years and I'll be one of those people. And it turns out I'm not one of those people. I just couldn't do it, man. It just started like, I would, I felt depressed. You know, it's just one of those things where I'm just like, I'm not doing anything worthwhile. I'm not interested in this. I'm not uh, happy about it. I, my work started to suffer. I mean, it's funny. There was a point there that really sort of hammered it home for me about how this just wasn't real and didn't really matter, which was, I felt like I was doing way worse at work than I had been in a long time. I just didn't care. I was doing like, just like the bare minimum, right? Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't going to get fired or anything like that. But like my work just wasn't quality. I wasn't into it, you know, mm -hmm. and they gave me an award. <laughs> <laughs> they gave me some, you know, employee of the month for my outstanding efforts or something. And I'm just going like, this is just stupid. Like if any, if you were paying attention at all, you would know that I was not putting out great work. Here. Or it just means that you, you at a lower capacity, you're still better than the, the average at that. Like, Cause that can happen in corporations too. Totally. And if that's the case, fine. It still sucks, right? Because mm -hmm. I know I can do way more than I'm doing. And you think this is great. I'm like, this is just dumb, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I started to look for other ways to, to other ways to go. And well, th that led to the big change in my career, which was a couple of years prior, I had started limited resources. I had done it on the side. I was doing it as well as doing, uh, my job at, at AT&T. Mm -hmm. And, um, I also had started doing coverage, but just right before that, uh, I had only done a couple of events, but they were asking me to do a few more here and there. So I was using my vacation days from AT&T to, to go do coverage events. And, you know, I, when we started the podcast, it wasn't about money. I mean, we didn't make anything for years. It wasn't about that at all. And I had to be kind of talked into it, but people said, well, you should take a shot at monetizing it. And I was like, well, nobody does that. Like nobody currently in magic at that time had monetized podcasts. And I was like, well, I'm not comfortable with this because it's just not really what it was about for me. You know, mm -hmm. I just wasn't 
trying to make money. I made money at my work and my job and I was comfortable. So it was fine. But I was like, look, I want to keep doing the show, but it is going to be difficult if I quit my job to do the show and look for other jobs or start a new career or do something different. So it kind of was in a corner where it was like, if I want to keep doing the show, I'm going to have to do something to monetize it. Um, but I didn't know if it was going to work. You know, it was just a full on blind faith jump and hope that this works out because the way I decided to do it was uh, via Kickstarter because Patreon or that type of site didn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to kickstart one year of the podcast, which is awkward. That's not really how Kickstarter works, but it was the best thing that we had at the time. And so I decided to do it and I quit. I quit. I quit at AT&T. I left. It was a big, big, big decision for me, but I saved up money and I saved up extra money to put into the podcast. I I mean, I guess I could say now it doesn't, but I put about 15,000 bucks into that, you know, mm -hmm. Kickstarter, you know, with all the stuff involved. And then of course my time, uh, not working as well, although I'm not counting that monetarily, but still that mattered too. Um, and I kind of, you know, held my nose and jumped in the deep end of the pool to see what would happen. And, uh, and I told myself, I'm going to take six months off. And if I can get this thing, get this ball rolling enough that I can see that it's going to go somewhere, then I will stick with it. And if it flops, then I got to get the resumes out and I'm not going back to AT&T, but I'll have to do this type of work somewhere else and probably repeat a similar process to the one I did AT&T where it's kind of fine at first because things are new and challenging and then they really fade and, and it's not really what I want to be doing anyway. I think that's a really important step here. I didn't actually know the term for it back then when I faced something similar in my life. But uh, I later found out it was like negative visualization, where it's like you try to imagine what would happen if everything went south, and it didn't work mm. out like worst case scenario. And if you can still find a way to recover from that, and usually you can, like you can imagine, okay, if it doesn't, if this doesn't work out, and this doesn't work out, I'll be back here. Like that, mm -hmm. that actually mm -hmm. helps a lot. And I, I, I just wanted to call that out, because that is something yeah. that consistently allows humans really to, to make uh, a leap, whatever that may be. Yeah, even though that risk feels catastrophic if it goes, <laughs> you know, like before you make that take that risk, you think, well, this will ruin me. But like you said, you know, with a little bit of thought, you realize, well, you won't actually be ruined. Like it'd be a setback, but what you're going to go through your whole life without setbacks? Like that that's not how life works. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you got to take a risk, right? So, and and then also, you know, at, when I was working or a little before I started working at AT&T, I had also started to play poker. And it gradually got more and more serious for me where I was playing online a lot and I was playing in local casinos and down in Vegas a lot as well. Mm -hmm. And I had gotten good. Like I was, you know, legitimately supplementing my income at the time at AT&T with poker. And so I told myself, well, I know what my hourly is playing poker. And what I can do is I can use that to fill the gap between whatever. So I make like I made X dollars at AT&T. I'll make however much I make for magic, whatever the difference is, I'll go play poker because that was a thing that I didn't love. I mean, it, it's, it's not a particularly fun thing to go grind poker for money. In fact, it's actually miserable. I've done it. I've tried it before. I, I, I can understand where you're coming from. Yeah. It's not a, it's a job. It's not a, it's not a game. <laughs> yeah. It's a job where you can go in and they go, we'll take $1,500. Thanks for showing up for eight hours. And you hand them $1,500 and then you go home. It's like, what? You know, like it just doesn't, 
it feels awful, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's just every other job you go to, even if you hate it, you get paid every time you go. Sometimes you hate going to play poker and they take money from you. It's just this weird thing where it's these emotional swings that are attached to your job, which, which, you know, isn't a really great place to be. Um, and at that point, you know, I, I had been playing for a long time, so I wasn't like freaking out about anything, but you know, still it's, it's your, it's your rent money and stuff. So anyway, I told myself that I would just fill those, fill those hours in that way. And that's exactly what I did. But the key thing happened was the Kickstarter. And I, uh, really, I did what we, you and I talked about earlier, James, about, you know, really trying to make sure that it was right before I did it. I took my time. I didn't just throw it up and go, eh. you know, I got, a, I answered, I asked a lot of questions, got a lot of feedback from people that I trust and really kind of got it to where I thought it would be in a good place. And then I turned it on I said, okay, let's see what happens. And I, set the goal for it low, like basically the bare minimum that I thought I could get away with just for having put up the Kickstarter, let alone, you know, doing the show for a year. I just sort of wrote that off as, well, I hope we get there, but I need to at least get it back. So I put, I put it at like 11 or $12,000 for the year, mm -hmm. um, which isn't very much right for an entire year. But again, that was like the cash I had put in, you know, at the, at, at that point I ended up having to put more in, but you know, to do the stuff that I wanted to do for the Kickstarter, and it was incredible, man. I, I, I remember it so well because I put it live, but it took, I don't know, an hour and a half or two hours before it would actually like show as an actual site on the Kickstarter page. And I had done this pretty late at night. So I went to sleep. And when I woke up, I'm like, oh, and I grab my phone and I bring up Kickstarter on it. And I'm <laughs> okay, you know, like, how did it do? Like, yeah. what are we at? You know, and I remember it was, you know, it had been up for like a day mm -hmm. and it was at like, I can't remember, but I think it was at like $35,000 or something. Wow. It way exceeded your expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Like way, way, way. Like the 11 that I put wasn't where I actually needed to be to make it worth my time. It was just so that I didn't take a complete bath on just doing it. <laughs> but the, but getting to that amount, it ended up finishing at 40 something thousand for the year. And Again, even when you think about that for the amount of work it takes to do the show plus paying the co-hosts and all the hosting fees and everything, it's still not actually that great, but it showed me that this was a possibility. Mm -hmm. It said, this is on the table for you to do this, right? Mm -hmm. And so that gave me confidence that my uh, audience, that the people that supported me in the podcast had my back and wanted me to do the show like in this way and they were cool with it. You know, they were like, no, this is okay. Cause I, like I said, I felt so weird about doing it, um, at all. Um, and so then by the time that year elapsed and I had fulfilled the obligations of that, um, Patreon existed and I was really early on Patreon. And I said, this is exactly what I've been looking for. There was another competing site that ended up getting bought by them. Um, I'm glad I didn't go with that one. Um, but, uh, I signed up and put LR on Patreon and 2014 and we just haven't looked back since okay so lr has existed since is it 2013 2012 around then 2009 oh 2009 so you yeah. were at at&t and you had been just grinding and doing a lr on the side for for Two years, years. Like, it sounds like yeah 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 exactly yeah i started lr while i was at at&t still i started working there in like i think 2006 or 2007 or something like that i can't remember and then, and then I, uh, yeah, we started the show in 2009 and I quit in 2012. So I'd already, you know, so the show had been around for two and a half years or so by the time I 
quit at and Right. And so I was going to ask you about how you exceeded your target on Kickstarter, but it sounds like you had already built up quite a following just by having like years and years of skin in the game and and putting out something every week and having built enough of a following where you could then take the leap, right? Yeah. I mean, the show had really blossomed by that point. Um, you know, our audience was very big. I was like, wow, like I did not think this many people would listen to limited uh, mm-hmm. content specifically. But it also turns out that, um, you know, in many ways, the podcast landscape was kind of ripe, like people wanted really high quality uh you know, learning how to play better style content. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of it. There were some, but there wasn't a lot of it. And there definitely wasn't enough of it at the time. So we just really filled a gap as far as quality and type of content went at the time. And we, but we did the slow build. I mean, yeah, it was two and a half years before we really asked for anything. Um, you know, and that, that is what it takes to build up a big audience, right? Like you, you have to put in that time and that consistency. I mean, I went through, uh, a couple of co-hosts in that time. I mean, you know, by the time we got to the Patreon, I was on my third LR co-host. Like it, it took me battling and scrapping to keep that thing alive and keep it going and make sure that, you know, I was the steward of, of the show and, and didn't let it fall apart at any point um, just to, to get it to that point. You know, that was kind of the important thing that happened ahead of it was me saying, okay, well, I, I, my first co-host got hired at Wizards of the Coast. And I'm like, okay, well, I, at that point I thought the show was over because in my mind, the show was him and I, that, mm-hmm. that that's what it was. But the people that listened were like, well, no, like we, you know, like you have to keep doing it. And I'm like, well, it's me and Ryan. Like, I don't have another host. I'm sorry. Like, I don't know what you want. Mm-hmm. And they were just like, we'll find somebody else. And I'm like, well, okay, fine. I guess I'll try out some people. <laughs> and I found John, yeah. uh, John Laux and he was great. I had him on for almost two years and then he got hired at Wizards of the Coast. Yeah. And so then a mutual friend of ours, Brian Wong, came on and he was just fantastic. I mean, probably in my mind, like the 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 archetype of an LR co-host is Brian Wong. Like he's the most well-rounded kind of middle, you know, middle middle like of all of the co-hosts. Like he represents the the sort of the crux of it all. In fact, I had to drag him kicking and screaming onto the show. And then he got a bunch of feedback because people are like, what the hell? This guy's awesome. <laughs> and I'm like, see, I told you. Undiscovered. Yeah, I yeah. knew. John knew. My Our friend Zame knew. But but Brian had to be uh, kind of pulled onto the show. But he added a lot. Uh, he was really fantastic. Um, but then he ended up uh, leaving. And uh, and finally, somebody left to not work at Wizards of the Coast. That was kind of really <laughs> Breaking um, the cycle, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then uh, Luis was like, I'd consider it. And I was like, done <laughs> you know I, <laughs> I, I, the, and and we have and Luis has been the longest co-host uh, by a lot by by over double now right right so maybe this is a bit of backtracking too but how did you even come up with the idea of having a limited podcast because it like you said it wasn't probably wasn't like you, you definitely found the the target audience I don't deny it but just from day one or before day one, how did you and Ryan or, or you try to do something like that? What was the story behind that? Yeah, it's interesting because I think that there's a big lesson to be learned from that. Because if you were to design the perfect magic podcast with regards to growing an audience or monetizing it or getting advertisers or something, you would never, ever pick limited right? It's a niche inside of a niche inside of a niche. It's, it's just too narrow, right? Mm-hmm. But this is why this is important. 
because all great content is because the person cares about that content. And the downside to that is that and if you happen to not care about whatever standard deck lists or something like that, which would be the biggest audience probably or commander or something like that, then sorry, you know, you're either going to have to make a podcast about something that you don't really care about that much, which spoiler alert, that's not going to work, right? Like you will not yeah, talk about sustainability and consistency. Right? Yes. Right. That isn't how that works. Um, it, it, you have to talk about the things that you know about and that you care about. And then if you find your audience, great, right? The way that that ended up happening in my case though, um, was at poker. I was playing poker, um, at a place that Ryan Spain worked at at the time. It was actually a game, uh, development studio here in downtown Seattle. And there was a group of us that had played there and we played, um, in other games too. So it was kind of a, a poker group, loose poker group. And the story is actually really interesting. Um, Ryan had emailed Aaron Forsyth, like that Aaron Forsyth, mm-hmm. uh, about getting into a fantasy baseball league that Ryan wanted to invite him into. We did not know Aaron at all. We knew who he was because he was a big wig at Wizards, but we didn't, you know, we were just little nobodies, right? Sure, yeah. And anyway, their conversation ended up saying that, um, Ryan was saying, well, there's some people here at the studio that like to play magic, but we, you know, we, we, I've been trying to get a league together or something like that. And, and Aaron offered to send him some product over and they sent him over like three cases of product. And I don't know, we, we actually don't know to this day if that was a mistake or maybe if they thought, well, this is for a whole game studio because Wizards actually does do that occasionally where they'll send product over. Right. To a, but very special occasions and not to not that much product to one person. <laughs> right. And so Ryan was like, and this is just how Ryan works. He's like, well, we're going to we're going to take advantage of this windfall by sharing magic with as many people as we can. And so he opened up a. Uh, sealed league, multiple sealed leagues, draft nights, all this stuff um, for the whole studio that he worked at using this product. He had spreadsheets to track stuff so that he could give the product to the people that won. And like, he was just like amazing with all of this stuff as an ambassador for magic, even though he didn't work for wizards at all. He just really loved magic. Just kind of a generous guy wanted to spread it around kind of thing. Yeah. I think he felt a responsibility with that windfall that he got and said, well, I'm not just going to hoard this for myself. I'm going to, you know, really try to leverage this. And he, so at the time he knew that I, that I had played magic, uh, right out of high school with my best friend, Jay, who happens to be Ryan's cousin as well, which is how I met Ryan. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but Ryan's about six or seven years older than me. So he's kind of always had like a mentorship role for me. Cause when I first became aware of him, I was 13. You know, and he was 18 or 19. He was in college. So when you're in junior high and somebody's in college, they're like in a whole nother level. Yeah, right? another like, stratosphere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like now the difference between me and him isn't that great. Right. Mm-hmm. And the difference between me and somebody like six or seven years younger than me isn't that great. But it goes the same way back then when I'm 13 and you're seven years old. It's like, you know, we're, we're completely different uh Level. So Ryan, you know, with that age gap has always been kind of one step ahead of me in life and always kind of been a, uh, somebody I've looked up to and a mentor. And, uh, and, and he came back from college once when I met him and me and Jay were into magic and, uh, we didn't really know what we were doing. Jay did more than I did, but I just had some cards basically, but I taught Ryan how to play and, um, and he really liked it and he stuck with it and I went away from it eventually finding poker and then I mean, it was 10 years since I'd even seen a a magic card and he was like, Hey, you should play. 
And I'm like, nah, dude, I'm on poker now. Like I'm good. I, I don't, you know, <laughs> I'm over it. Like I had that time right yep. when I was 19 or whatever, but I'm, I'm off it. And he's like, no, I really think you'd like this. Like, I know you're, you're really good at poker. You play this certain way. Like you, you would, you'd really, eh, no, dude, dragons, whatever. I'm fine. Yeah. Children's card game and all that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he finally badgered me into doing like a sealed or something like that with one of his coworkers. And I did it and it was overwhelming. I mean, I, he was actually teaching me the real rules, not whatever I thought they were in, you know, 1990, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm just like, Felt a little overwhelmed. I remember uh, this was Lorwyn Block, so somebody played a Jace Balaran, and I'm like, "What is that?" Right? And I thought, <laughs> "What is this?" They really ruined this game. Yeah, I just thought they like ruined Magic, and it was like a totally different thing than when I had played. And I just thought, "Whatever." And I'm like, "Okay, that was kind of fun. Thanks. Like, can you not bother me about this anymore?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I went home. But then I messaged him the next day. We we all that whole group was always talking about poker hands and can you believe this guy lost that much last night and wow I really ran it up or whatever. And the next day instead of asking Ryan about a poker hand, I said, "So if a creature has first strike and gets blocked by t- you know and all of a sudden he you know I could I could just feel him just crack his knuckles on the other side of the computer and <laughs> do the steeple fingers you know like where you're like, like got him <laughs> got him." <laughs> And I'll tell you what, but he got me good because uh, I started asking more and more questions. I started thinking about the strategy of it. I started telling him – he started to tell me about Limited and how it was the best way to play the game. I ended up getting a Magic Online account in my first draft, which was Limited. It was Shadow More Eventide. And uh, – or excuse me. Yeah, my first uh, tournament or any way to play on Magic Online was a draft. Mm-hmm. And um, he got me. It's that simple. He hooked me. I became completely enthralled with the rules, with improving at it, with understanding. And for me, a big part of it was translating my poker skills to it because so many of my poker skills translated directly that I felt like I was able to get up to speed way, way quicker than normal mm-hmm. and really start to grapple with the really interesting, fun, um, more subtle dynamics of it. And uh, eventually I started playing in real life. So going back to your question, though, this, you know, about how we started the show, well, that meant that every time we were playing poker, I was just asking him about magic the whole time. And he would do these write-ups for me, and he would write me these long um, instant messages on the computer, and he would tell me about it the right. whole time we were playing. And and I was It's almost like, too good not to share, right? Yes, that's what it was. That's exactly what it was, James. It was just us going, we're having these conversations anyway. Why don't we record them so other people can learn the stuff that I'm learning? And it had a natural sort of student teacher thing where I was the student and I could sit in for the listener and he was the authority figure who was doing the teaching. And so I could ask the questions that I think that the listeners would want to know, but we could also bring our brand of ultra spiky, um, poker player, basically, uh, approach to it, which was ruthless numbers oriented, Mm -hmm. logic based, you know, um, that kind of thing and get people in line who were, who were loose, you know, who were playing 41 cards in their decks or just taking unnecessary risks or putting a bunch of cards that didn't do anything and just say, Hey, Hey, get in line here and you're going to win more. And if you're interested in that, you know, then you'll like this show. And then it turns out that it worked. And when people won more, they're like, these guys are great because I'm winning more. You right. Know? Let's and, keep listening to what they have to say. Yeah. 
because they're helping me. It wasn't just us talking about each other or saying, oh, how was your vacation or what's some topic that you want to pontificate about? It was like, we've got their ear for a certain period of time and we needed to deliver what they want to come for. This isn't about us. And every other podcast we listened to started off with 10 minutes of just mindless banter about the people (laughs) themselves. And it was like, I don't like not to be rude, but like, I don't care. Right. Like I, I could listen to 30 different podcasts and I'm choosing yours. Give me what I want. Right. It's not about you. You're not that funny. You're not that entertaining. You're not that great. I'm here to learn from you. Right. And if you can entertain me or say something funny as you go, great. But don't pretend like you're a comedian because you have a microphone in front of you. Give me what I want. Right. I'm here for the info. Yeah. 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 We, for, for our listeners, they're going to get what they want and we're not going to pretend like we're some, you know, amazing, entertaining speakers or whatever. And so we really try to keep it, you know, we decided early that we wouldn't talk about off topic stuff on the show, right? Mm -hmm. We, you know, even if it was really tempting because there was some big controversy in the community or something that we really felt strongly about, it's like, no, we, we have to respect our listeners time and we don't want to, we want to give them exactly what they came for and, and exactly not what they didn't come for. So it it sounds like you guys had a very clear mission statement from the beginning. Like this is what we are and this is what we are not like even, even things like you said that you planned with Ryan, like, are we going to swear on the show? Are we going to, uh, are we going to be staying in our lane for this or not? Like, like that, that was really uh, deliberate. It sounded like very, very deliberate. I mean, I I actually have a piece of paper where we wrote all this stuff down. It's not quite as mission statementy as you'll see like on a corporate mission statement, but yeah. it's all there. Yeah, it's, it's all there. Uh, very, very deliberate. We really decided we, again, this goes back to what we talked about earlier in the show, James, we, we front loaded this. We did not figure this out as we win. We didn't, you know, start off by talking conversationally, which might include some swear words and then later go, well, what if you had a child, you know, let's say a 12-year-old that wanted to listen to this and their mom heard it and said, well, you're not listening to that. It has swearing in it, right? We just cut off a potential audience member that could really benefit from what we had to say. We thought about that ahead of time and we did that as exhaustively as we could and it paid off. I mean, it really did because we didn't have to adjust the show a whole bunch of times to try to find our voice. Like we we had that and we made adjustments after, but they weren't fundamental. You know, we, we knew what we wanted. So having said that, though, the first three or four years of LR, what would you say are were the major learnings? And I apologize if you guys did an episode on this already, but I, I really I, I'm genuinely curious, like what are some things that you're even using today based on what you had learned in those early days? So we try to translate as many poker um poker, you know, not strategies, but concepts, as many poker concepts as we could over. And that was kind of our baseline. I'd say the the one that st- stands out the most from that time frame was a term that we we used in poker called Roddy, uh, which is results oriented thinking. And then we made it into like whatever, you know, a non English word called Rot. So R O T, and then don't be Roddy is what we would say. Mm-hmm. And you know that means, you know, put. You can listen to us talk about it for hours and hours on LR of many different episodes. But basically that it's really tempting for the human brain to assume that the result of the thing that just happened will also be the result if that thing happens again, even though it's often not the case. And so it requires you to go one step deeper and to look at things from the perspective of uh, using your intuition, your experience, and maybe even some numbers or math or something like that to try to understand what the average or most likely outcome would have been for a given action rather than focusing on the fact 
that a given action happened and a given result happened and therefore uh, assuming that it will happen again. And I can give a magic card example uh, and one that we actually harped on a lot in the early days, which was the card fog, right? Green, instant, prevent all all combat Mm -hmm. damage. A staple of magic sets. Yeah, exactly. Especially back then. And, you know, that, that is a card that people would happily play in limited. But if you actually take the time to examine it, it's actually terrible and limited. It's really bad. Like you would be better off in most cases putting a basic land in that spot. <laughs> it's terrible in magic period. But yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. And I mean, like at least with constructed, you can build your whole deck around it and do a turbo fog thing or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. But in limited, people would just say, well, it's good because my opponent attacked me for 12 and I played this card and then I didn't take 12. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're just like it poses an interesting problem as somebody who's logical. Cause you're like, that did happen, but you're not accurately reflecting the cost that you actually paid to do that. Because what they would say is, what do you mean? I paid one green mana. It was cheap. It was fine. Mm-hmm. Right. And the cost that you actually paid, of course, is a card, right? And that card could have been a different card and that is opportunity cost. Right. And this is something that comes up all the time, but you could have played something else in that spot that could have won you the game or let you stabilize or blocked and traded for a creature rather than delaying the inevitable like fog does Mm -hmm. yet while putting you down a card. And so what we would do is we would go deep like I am right now. And we would spend 25 minutes talking about this concept to try to ram it into their head because the very basic use case is it, it to take an extreme one is opponent attacks me with everything. I fog, then I attack them back with all of my everything and I win the game. And that leaves you mentally feeling like fog won you the game, right? You think, wow, geez, right? Like that was insane blowout. Like fog is amazing. It literally just won me the game. Yeah, the the best case scenario as it were, where all all these confluence of things went right in the best case. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which by the way, uh, brings up an important other uh, concept that we brought to the table back then. We called it BCSM, best case scenario mentality. And this is similar to what I was just talking about with fog, which is basically – Uh, A little different, though, it's actually a a, a card evaluation fallacy that we Mm -hmm. see a lot, which is somebody reads a new card before they've had a chance to play it, and they only envision it doing the thing that it wants to do in the best case that it can do it, and they don't envision it in any other scenario where it would be worse. Um, And, you know, for cards like removal spells, that's actually reasonable, right? Because if a removal spell costs three mana and it kills a creature, then you think, well, this is great. I can spend three mana and I can kill a creature. And you'd be right. That's exactly what that does. But on trickier cards, on more conditional cards, on cards that say if you cast two spells in a turn or if you cast an instant or sorcery or you can get back something from the graveyard or you can only get it back from your opponent's graveyard or whatever, even if it's really powerful, right? Mm-hmm. You have to still take the extra step to say, but does this take a lot of setup? We, and, and I actually coined a term called setup cost. I wrote an article for wizards, um, called setup cost, mm. you know, and this is just the concept. It's a simple one, but just of, um, how much work do I have to do to make this card good? Do I have to dump a bunch of cards in my graveyard? Do I have to put a bunch of instants and sorceries? Do I have to put a bunch of elves in my deck? What, what does it take to make this card good? What's my setup cost? Does it have a high, medium or low setup cost? These are all the types of things that we talk about on the show and that we introduced way back then as sort of the foundational elements to how we approached magic. And that, that's what got our audience because there was, there was nobody talking like this about limited at the time. Right. Or, or that some, maybe some of the higher level players internalized that, but it was never really like explained to a mass audience, right? 
That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And a lot of the high-level players came from a similar background to us at poker. So they kind of internalized and knew this stuff, but they either didn't want to tell people because they wanted that information for themselves. That was the prevailing mentality at the time. Mm-hmm. Or uh, they didn't know how, right? Like it's it's hard to convey this information in a useful, meaningful way that's actionable by normal people, right? It's a, You can maybe explain the concept, but then somebody sits down at the draft table and goes, Okay, I understood what they were saying, but like, how do I win more drafts because of that? Right. And that takes examples and Mm -hmm. use cases and things like that. And that's a, you know, something that we focused on early to make sure that it was applicable for our audience. I think there's also a unique thing about podcasting too is that I think sometimes it's human to read an article where like you may even see the same thing three times, but it's still hard for you to understand because you're, you're, you're reading it. And, and sometimes Mm -hmm. if you're on a drive and Marshall is like, talking for another 20 minutes about setup cost or something like maybe you can better basically you can repeat it more and and it's more accepted as it were because Mm -hmm. it's a a weekly show and you can go back to it you can use like different examples with the same concept right yeah and that was actually a hurdle that i had to get over because there came a point where i felt like we had kind of talked about the things that we wanted to talk about you know call it four or five years in and kind of going like well i don't want to rehash old stuff and then I realized, no, I really, really want to rehash old stuff. And I actually want to do it more often than I'm currently mm. doing it. Because even people that have heard it before, it's a useful reminder. And it also has that effect that you just mentioned, which is kind of that mantra. It like kind of bangs it into your head where it becomes part of the way that you approach the game when it gets repeated to you a bunch. And even if you know what I'm going to say, it's fun to play along with or it makes you feel smart to play along with it because you're like, I get what he's saying and I knew where he was going to go. You know, right. It's uh, it's not exactly the same, but it kind of, you know, when I have had my career as a product manager where you're working in a corporate environment and you have to communicate a lot, there used to be a saying that I I always internalize, which is like you always have to communicate more than you think you need to. You may actually need to say something 10 times so that the audience gets it once. And it's only (laughs) when you're tired of your own voice that means you've actually done enough. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yep. It is true. It's just a thing about humans, right? I mean, they talk about that for marketing all the time. They just repeat, you know, you you hear these horrendous commercials where they're just like, they say the phone number four times in a row. And it's like, it's really annoying, but it also works. Like, it's just, you know, sometimes people just need to hear that. Yeah. And sometimes we're the ones who are like, I got it the first time, but then maybe there's 99 other people that are like, you, they need to hear it four times. So yeah, exactly. Uh, More about LR and uh, what, would you say are your favorite episodes? Do you, do you have any, or do you think that they're all sort of good in their own way? Maybe. No, I, I do. I mean, th- there's a few that stand out, um, like a couple uh, off the top of my head. Uh, one of them that I thought was really important was, uh, the one where Brian Wong introduced, uh, quadrant theory, uh, which is one of our main concepts. And just in very short, uh, it's, it's basically a way to evaluate cards rather than, and and this is, uh, by the way, sort of the full circle on that best case scenario mentality discussion that we just had. This teaches you how to understand when and how a card would be good by putting it into four different stages of a magic game, typical stages of a magic game, um, which is uh, basically looking at things like when you're ahead, when you're behind, when you're at parity, or when you're building out the board. Because these are kind of things that tend to happen in, very frequently in Magic. And 
putting that card in all of those situations where you don't just look at it only for the situation where it's great, but also times when, you know, you say, well, what if you play this card when you're behind and you're like, well, it's actually terrible. Like I'll still just lose the game. Okay. Well that matters. Right. Mm -hmm. And then if you're at parody, is this the type of card that can break that parody or does it just keep parody? And it's like, well, this type of card that stays the same and it helps you kind of, um, figure out where to be. And when Brian uh, brought that to the table, I thought that was like a, a hallmark episode for the show. Um, another one that stands out as one of my all time favorites was, uh, one of our anniversary shows. I don't even remember which one, um, what number of show it was, but we got to do a live show at PAX and I got to have all of my co-hosts on stage with me. Uh, so I was up there and Brian and John and Ryan and Luis were all there. Oh, it was the reunion show kind of thing. Yes, that's exactly it. And it was super fun. We did a game show that was a quiz that the winner got to come do a draft with me and all the guys on the show, plus like BDM and a few other magic people. I mean, we did a cube. It was just super fun. Two of the listeners got to come do that with us. Um, and it was great. I mean, they were cheering. Like they were clapping right in front of us and listening to the things we were saying. And it just was surreal. Um, and super fun to get to interact with people face to face. Cause I mean, I'm usually staring at the wall of my office, you know, yeah, I really, me too. You know, I, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I try to think of it as talking to another person, um, you know, besides Luis or whatever, but you know, it's just different when they're sitting in front of you. So that was a really special one. Um, and then the other one that, that sticks out was one that I put a extraordinary amount of effort into, which was, I had the idea to do a fully post-produced episode of LR. Um, where I went and got tape and then, uh, you know, didn't, didn't play it conversationally, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the way we do LR is how this show is done, right? It's, it's me and you having a chat and it's me and Luis talking about the things we want to talk about. Um, and I like the flow of that. I like a conversational flow. Um, but you know, when you listen to a lot of the, really the best podcasts from, you know, whatever NPR, any of the, the big, you know, Gimlet, they're made, uh, in a specific way that is recorded and then brought into a studio and completely edited, chopped up with uh, voiceover in combination with recorded footage and music and all this stuff to make a really compelling, compact, you know, show that really kind of hits the points that it wants to hit. And I thought, well, this, that'd be a good idea. I should do a show like that. But I was smart. I listened to a lot of podcasts like that. And when they get to the end, they're always like, I'm your host, blah, blah, blah. This show was made by, you know, this show was edited by this person. The sound was edited by this person. It was produced by this person. Editorial, you know, content was provided by this person. The, and you're like, whoa, right? Like all of yeah, a sudden. Yeah, it was a big team behind that. Yeah. Nine people, yeah, that made this one episode. But I thought to myself, okay, I don't have to get an episode like this out in a certain time frame. So I'm going to do it myself. Right. So what, so I will do all of the roles, even if it takes me a really long time. And my thought process was that that's not sustainable, but that I will at least learn what is, what, what is at stake at each of the roles, how hard it is and how it works. And then I can eventually hire this out to somebody else or collaborate with somebody on it, but I'll understand what parts I can do and what my strengths are and also what my weaknesses are and what parts I should really ask somebody else to help me with. That was an amazing episode. I listened to that. Thank you. I appreciate it. It truly was something special. Like it, 
it really felt like, you know, another episode of uh, This American Life or, you know, like it was really well done. It had like the right segues and, and intros and, and cuts, really, because I, I could tell that like it wasn't like the raw form wasn't what it ended up as. And uh, yeah, not at all. <laughs> yeah. So that took me nine months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I kept putting it on the back burner. And then I at one point I had to redo the whole, I, it was it was a real journey and I learned a lot from it and I'm proud of how it came out though. I also feel like the messaging in it is what I'm really proud of. And I think that like if given another shot to do like two or three more episodes, I could really tighten it up even better and, and really kind of, you know, get good at doing that. And I felt like I was proud of it. Um, but really happy with how the, like I got the point across that I wanted to, um, which was really what was important to me. But that's a, that's another episode that stands out, not just because of the, extreme labor that went into it but also just because i remember putting it up and thinking when i put up a normal episode of the show i'm very i view them all as little butterflies right they'll either fly or they won't and i'll learn from it and then i'll move on and i don't get attached i I let them go but this one took so much effort and coming back to it after having let it sit for a month and grind on it and i typed up every word of every interview I did for that. It took me hours and it was so mindless. And I was just like, if, if people say this sucks or if they're like, yeah, cool. What's, what's, what's up next week? Right. I just would have been crushed. I can't lie. Like I just put too much of myself into that episode <laughs> yeah. to really just let to, to be separated from it enough. Yeah. Um, so, and, and people really loved it. I got probably the best response I've got out of any show ever. So I was, but, but I'll tell you, I was happy about it, but my primary feeling was relief because I'm like, Oh, they like it. Thank God. Cause yeah. if they hated it, I don't think I could would have had to it. jump out a window or something. Yeah. You know? If they would have been like, this sucks. Like it's not as good as a normal episode or I don't really understand why you did this. This is stupid. I just would have been like, <laughs> yeah. bring back Luis. So- yeah. Or something yeah. crazy. Yeah. 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 It was cool. But can we get Luis back on next week? I just going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll do another one at some point. I actually am ready to do that. I just haven't figured out who or what exactly I want to talk about. Cause the first one I knew, cause I thought about it for, I actually thought about that for a couple of years. Um, but the next one, I haven't really figured out what question do I really want to answer and get deep on. But once I do, I'll, I'll do it. Right. You have to be really committed or interested in that topic, right? It kind of goes back to what you're saying. Like if you're doing something for over half a year just on this episode, like you can't just half-ass it. Like it can't be something yeah. that you don't have an interest in or someone commissioned you to do, right? Yeah, I have to be really, really excited. And it has to mean something to me. I mean, to me, that episode um, was was a it's a good shorthand to me on everything that LR stands for. Like if you only ever listen to that episode, it would not tell you what LR was like, because that is not like any other episode of LR. But the subject matter does it. It goes as deep as I could go with two of the two of the absolute best players that I know in the world. Um and I went all the way, right? I, I explored that topic as far as they could go. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think what I also found really interesting about that is I think oftentimes you listen to a podcast and the guests say something and then you're like, oh, yeah, the guests were really good. But I think sometimes what people don't understand is the preparation that goes into asking the guests the right questions so that they would actually talk about it that way. I think that's totally. often like underrated. Totally, yeah. And I feel that way 
it translate that way translates that way in the booth, right? When I'm doing coverage, the same way when I have a co-commentator with me, you know, I view it as my responsibility to to make them look great, right? Yeah. Like I want to accentuate all the things that they're really good at and minimize the things that they're not. And if people if if we come out of a tournament, especially if it's like a new person or somebody that we haven't used that much, and people are going, wow, that that color commentator was amazing, right? I feel in I feel some pride on my side, even though I'm not that person, <clears throat> you know, because I feel like I I tried my best to to make them be amazing. And if if people are saying it, then that means at least I did something right there. So yeah, and so because that episode was so well received in, in many senses of the word, you said you're going to work on future ones. Or do you think you're still going to solo it or are you going to have a more of a collaborative effort? I'm, or has that, or is that rolling into maybe video content or other things as well? I'm just curious. Um, currently I would still solo it, but I would reduce the scale of it dramatically. Uh, my thought process when I did that video, that one was to ask I, I got time with with William Huey Jensen and Ben Stark, right? And these are two close friends as well. So they were really cool and said, okay, yeah, I'll do this. And I talked to them for an hour and a half. I mean, maybe more, you know, about these things. And I thought, well, I'll just cover everything possible. And then I'll just take the really good stuff that hits the points that I want to hit. But I realized after the fact that that made it really, really tough. And I think a better way to do it would be to be even more focused about what I want and what I'm trying to say and get them in that, like on that path as quickly as possible and as cleanly as possible. And when I get what I want, get out. Um, because it just balloons. It just becomes so huge when you Right. Just yeah. In post-production, you have to sift through what they said and take the relevant parts. It's hard, right? Right. It's extreme. And then, and then arrange them in a way that is accessible without overdoing it, but without leaving out anything important. It's daunting. I mean, mm -hmm. and I was trying to weave two people's takes together. Mm -hmm. it, it was like, now I'm thinking maybe I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> yeah, to sorry if I talked you out of it. No, I mean, I'll tell you, you know what I ended up doing just so that I can conceptualize all this stuff is I typed out every word that they said in a transcript and then, and my words too. And then I organized them roughly by category and I gave them a star system on stuff that I thought was good, great, fantastic, must use, medium, bad, cuttable, like that. And then I started copy pasting. So I started writing a script for myself and then copy pasting their words in that I labeled and then would bring in later and then record my voice's voiceover in between. That was what I finally came up with to do it. That was after trying to do it without having the written word and struggling for months and months and eventually going back and going, okay, fine. I just need to, to read all, uh, I need to type out all this stuff. So yeah, um, I, I would reduce the scale a lot and try to keep the show uh, more compact. And I think I could do that a lot better. Um, and then I think I'm going to offload some of the music to a guy that I use for music named Chase Ryman, who's really great at this stuff. And I think I, I wasn't working with him when I did this, but I would be now and I would trust him to come up with some really great stuff and work, work musically with him. Mm. Actually, you know, actually, I, I think actually he helped me with some of it, but I would like offload it to him in a more meaningful way uh, next time. Right. It would be more like in his uh, jurisdiction or to, to have to take the yep. ball and run with it. Yeah. Yeah. Trust him on it. Yeah. Okay. 
And uh, what does the future hold for LR? I mean, it sounds like you guys have a a good thing in terms of you know what the, what you want the show to be, what it is, and what it isn't. But are there ways that you potentially envision the show evolving, perhaps in the years or months to come? Yeah, I think so. Um, right now, we Luis and I are both the type of person like to get in and change things around and improve them and do all this type of stuff. But we also both recognize that the formula has been very well refined on LR and that it's delivering the thing that people want for the most part. So we're not afraid to try new stuff, but we're wary to mess with the foundational things about LR because that is uh, an important structure piece that just because we feel, well, should we change it for the sake of changing it? And the answer has been no. But we always want to add new stuff. In fact, this week on the show, we added something we've never done before. We did a full draft walkthrough where we go through every single pick. And that's something that we haven't tried before because we thought it wouldn't work for audio. But we uh, used Arena and we gave it a shot. So the show's going to go up today. Uh, and we're going to see if people go, I couldn't follow it. it. It doesn't work. Or if they go, this is great, do this. And then we'll add that to our repertoire. And we have got a lot of different shows like that. So mm-hmm. that's where we see it going. And then if I can get it to a certain point or, or a certain way, I would I do see myself offloading video stuff for it and having um, – because right now I do a video version of each podcast. But on the regular shows, it's just a logo with like a background so that people can listen to it on YouTube or discover it that way or to um, – some people can't listen to the show on their phone while they're working or their work computer doesn't allow them on certain sites, but YouTube they do. So I just, to make it more accessible basically. Right. Um, but for the set reviews, the ones where we go over every card when the new sets come out, um, I, I do those and I make a background for it and I, and I put in card images for every card as we talk about it so that people can look at the card and read the card. If you're like a visual learner or if you're sitting at the computer rather than listening to it on your phone. And since we do talk about a lot of cards, I think I could make some space for a video editor to just like put the card images in or to put in relevant links or, or whatever um, for the YouTube version. And that's a goal that I have uh, for the show to make the YouTube version more visually to make it visually relevant rather than just a place to find the audio version. Um, so like that's a place that I could see it going for sure. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it sounds like. You guys know what the bread and butter is, what people come to the show for, but you know, you're not afraid to experiment with ways to push things a little bit and different things. You know, some things are gonna work, some things are not gonna work as well. But uh it's it's like keeping an open eye, even though the the principle of the show stays constant, right? Yeah, that is exactly the the line that we're trying to walk. We want to maintain the things that got to the show to where it is and that people expect from us. But we also want to keep up with the times, right? Like we, we talk a lot about arena now, for example, where of course that wasn't the case before. Um, and then, and then also make sure that we're pushing and, you know, for innovations and then also to keep us interested, right? Like we don't want to get bored of it, right? Mm-hmm. We don't want to get to the point where it's just literally the same, th- same thing all the time. Um, but for me, I love doing the show. I look forward to it every week. I talk to Luis every day throughout the week anyway, but it's a good time for him and I to, to chat and talk and interact and have fun with it. And, I think that him and I both also have a sense, um, I don't know how to put it, like of importance, I guess. Like we feel that the show that we do matters to a large group of people beyond just simply, you know, I I know better draft picks now. But also it's like, you know, we've gotten enough emails and feedback and stuff from people that said things 
like, and these are the ones, of course, that really stand out. Things like, I was having a really hard time in my life, right? And listening to you guys gave me a little escape or just a little smile or a little, there's there's something else out there rather than the problems that I'm facing right now or the depression I'm going through or, you know, the different things that people face uh, throughout the course of their life. And while that isn't, you know, the show is ostensibly there to help you improve at magic, it also does serve that function as hanging out with Luis and I or being a distraction, uh, you know, from the the ups and downs of everyday life. And I I find solace in that, you know, um, working at AT&T and playing poker for a living did not provide really any fulfillment um, where uh, doing the show does because I have had people come up and give me a hug and say, you helped me right? It mattered. Like what you did mattered. And then that's on top of the way more people that say, I won my first draft. Thank you. Right. Or I'm, I'm now a winning player at my local shop or I qualified for the pro tour. I made day two of my first GP or the first time at a GP or, you know, whatever. And all of these things that, that, you know, that we're now almost just used to getting that feedback, but Mm -hmm. it's like, good, like keep doing it. Like that's what we do the show for. Like that's, you know, because people we feel that people enjoy things more when they're successful at it. Right. And you can be a big magic fan and just lose all the time or you can be a big magic fan and win sometimes. And that's better. <laughs> so that's you know, that's for Luis and I, that's the motivating factor. Yeah. Improvement is always good. And yeah. I, I'm glad that you guys are helping people improve that. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be a hobby. It can be a passion. It can be a way of life. But yep. you're you're making some material impact in the way that they enjoy this great game. So I think that's really good. Yeah, and and that th- those are some of the absolute core things for both Luis and I as people, and also the way that we translate that to to LR. How did you and Luis actually meet? Uh, we met at the Community Cup in 2011. And that was a um, thing, a tournament that Wizards used to run where they'd bring in members of the community content creators mainly, we would call them influencers now, um, to play a a tournament at Wizards of the Coast that was um, streamed later, although this one wasn't, um, against people that worked at Wizards. And it was a way to say thank you to the people. Because, I mean, look, if you're sitting in Wizards and you're in the marketing department, people like you and me, James, are just gold. Right. Because we're working our butts off to make awesome magic content and it's free for them. They don't have mm-hmm. to do anything. And we're talking about how great the game is and getting people engaged and excited. And, you know, you, you're developing a community. I'm hopefully helping you uh, get excited about going to a pre-release and win it and do those type of things. So they love us and or at least they should. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and at the time, I mean, you know, it, it comes and goes based on who's in that seat. Yeah. But at the time, you know, they they developed this tournament where. People from the community would get to come in and play them. And they also would invite big name pros. So that was Luis. And I was like small time podcaster. I've only been doing the show for a couple of years and felt really lucky to even get the invite at all. And I went down and that's where I met him. Um, and we were on the same team. We won, by the way. That was great. And I got to know Luis a bit there and we hit it off. We were we were we got along well. But I mean, it was, you know, we were there for a few days and then off he went. And then um we ended up going on the magic cruise and uh, he got invited to be like a special personality there. And I think I just paid, I think I just went cause I thought it would be cool or one of my friends went or something. Mm-hmm. And I ended up hanging out with Luis for uh, that whole uh, trip. And we really got to, to get closer and to be better friends. And then 
um, eventually, you know, I was doing a lot more coverage or I started doing coverage, I should say. And then I did more. And so I would see him out and about there. And then he ended up being in the booth a bunch as well. And, uh, and so then, you know, we became friends that way. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's just, I, I love asking these questions because it's, it's interesting how people come together and then you kind of realize yeah. that you're compatible in a lot of ways, like value wise and, and other, other ways too. Yeah. I mean, him and I got along right off the bat. I mean, he started off of course, by just teasing me relentlessly. He had a big, you know, he had a whole bunch of different types of jokes that he loved to throw at me. And, <laughs> yeah. And, that's, that's you know, typical Luis. Yeah. And it's yeah, classic Luis. Right. But yeah, but I mean, but the, but the truth is, is that him and I are also very similar people. Um, and we got along on that level extremely well from the beginning. Like I liked him from the moment I started hanging out with him and I did not know what to expect from his personality. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, I, I had seen him a little bit here and there on pro tour stuff and he seemed like a nice guy, but like, you never know, right? Like I've seen a lot of people that seem nice and weren't nice at all. And I've seen <laughs> yeah. people that seem mean and I really liked them and it's yeah. just, you never really know. And, uh, but getting the chance to actually hang out with them, it turned out that we got along super, super well. We viewed life similarly and we still do. Uh, it's, it's great. Uh, you know, he's, he's one of my best friends easily. I talk to him all the time, uh, outside of the show and not about work, like just about all types of, you know, magic stuff and nonsense. And he'll tell me stories and all that. And we've helped each other through some really hard times in life as well. And, um, have both, you know, shown strength at times when it would have been easier to not, and I, I think that, you know, both him and I look at that and recognize that, that that's something special, right? That like not, not every friendship can survive everything. Not every friendship can get through uh, down times and up times and controversial stuff and, you know, whatever. And ours has. And I think that that, you know, really shows how, how well we get along. Yeah. I mean, I like to say that everything is so easy in life when things are going well. I mean, it's kind of like a metaphor for life or like poker or whatever. It's like, you know, when you're finding the aces and they don't get cracked, uh, yeah, the game seems easy, right? Life, the game of life seems easy, but it's like what you do and what you do for other people when times are hard, that what that's what really matters, right? Like yeah. everyone I, is fine yeah. during times of peace, but when there's adversity, that's what really, that's when it really matters. Yeah. And you know, Luis and I, when I look back at our friendship, we have faced some tough situations and stuff like that. And I'm really proud of, of the way that him and I treated each other and handled everything, you know, throughout anything that we've been through. And like I said, we, we've really been able to help each other out uh, over the years. And, and you know, to me, that, of course, that's a mark of a good friendship. I also think you guys have this very high level of excellence or standard of excellence and also just a, yeah. just a strong work ethic, which I, I, I'm starting to find because I, I, I'm talking to you now and I talked to him before and, you know, I'm starting to get a sense for that. Yeah. And we, we are very much aligned in that way. We both really care about the things that we make. We do not want to make things that suck. We don't want to be on cruise control. You know, we, when, when, when he came and did his coverage gig for a year, you know, we had, we were talking constantly about how to make it better and what we could do. What are some changes? What are some suggestions? What should him and I be doing? You know, that kind of stuff. When it comes to LR, like I said, we're always kind of turning the knobs and looking for refinements and stuff like that. And that is because him and I both come to each other with an understanding that putting out something mediocre is unacceptable, right? We're just, that's just not how him and I are built. We look at a situation, whether it's making content or anything else in life, and we want to optimize on it, right? We want to get our value. We want to, we want to do it right, right? We don't want to cut corners and we want to make something great. And we both understand the stuff that we were talking about earlier with the processes and that kind of thing. And when you can work 
with somebody like I have either on a friendship level or on a work level and both already come in with that understanding, it, it just works. Like it just, it, you know, cause I don't have to explain to him. Yeah, but Luis, that would suck. And I don't want to make something that sucks. I never have ever had to say that to him ever because he would never suggest something that was bad, you know, like that, that made the show or the coverage or whatever bad because he knows that his standards are the same as mine, which are, you know, we're going to try to make the best thing we can within reason. That's great. And uh, just to sort of um, close things, Marshall, I'm wondering if you have any uh, shout outs or anything that's else on your mind that you want to to discuss, because I, I just want to make this as open as possible. Uh, no, I mean, I, you know, I really like uh, your style, James. I, I got to I got to be honest. I I thought you were really, really thoughtful. And, uh, you know, we got to cover a whole bunch of, of stuff, um, you know, throughout the course of this. Um, I, I would offer some advice, I suppose, because I do get asked for this a lot. So if anybody was, uh, you know, wondering, well, I I'd like to do that. I'd like to get in the, in this position that Marshall's in or whatever. Um, if you were thinking that if you weren't apologies, <laughs> you can ignore this part, but oh no, I, were, this is great. I love to love to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I mean, I'm talking to your audience, right? Like I'd some, some of them are like, I don't care. I have a job, you know? Uh, but, but for people that do want to do this type of thing, I, I really do. Uh, feel that that formula that we talked about earlier about making the best thing that you can and doing it for the long term is the unfallible way to do it. I know a lot of people are tempted to do shortcuts, um, like trying to trick algorithms to get more attention or to do stupid things on Twitter where it's like, you know, if if I get 100 retweets on this, then I'll give away, you know, these things are all short term nonsense that mm-hmm. in my mind, if you just simply ignored all of those and put any effort that you were going to put into that into the product that you're making, mainly meaning your content or yourself, you will be way better off. Uh, I don't do those type of things, right? I've never done anything like that where I was like, oh, I'm going to do some marketing scheme to try to try to convince people that this podcast is good and that they should listen to it. Look, spending some money on marketing to get the thing in front of the people's eyes that you need it to fine. You don't have any problem with that. Do what you got to do. Right. I'm not, I'm not bagging on anybody for doing that. Mm-hmm. But if you're a small time starting out person, you're not going to have big money for that kind of stuff. And you have to really ask yourself, is this product worth doing that for? Is this good yet? Is it really? Cause a lot of people just say, well, I'm going to make a podcast and then they just assume that it's good. Listen to your podcast. Would you listen to it? Is it good? Are you good at this? Is it where you want it to be? Are you proud of it? You know, I'm going to give you an example uh, of, of something that, that I can translate to right now that shows that I put my money where my mouth is, or in this case, I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, the breakdown, MTG Breakdown, the YouTube channel. I started it in, in 2017, and my goal for it was I'm going to build it up, get an audience behind it, kind of proof of concept out these videos that I want to do for it. I had three types of videos in mind. And then I will start to look at doing a sponsorship with a website and or a Patreon or something like that for it to kind of let it grow and do its thing in its own time. I have not done that. And the reason is because I don't think that it's where I want it to be. And the thing that I'm missing right now is consistency, right? And I'm just being honest with myself because Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to be a patron of this and then not have videos show up. That's unacceptable to me as somebody who's creating it. And even though... I know damn well I could have started a Patreon or I could have gone to any number of websites and they would have said, sure, done, right? Mm -hmm. Because I am proud of the videos on it. You know, I I like the videos that I do on it. I think they're good. I think I thought it through and I think that they work. 
but they were dependent on me traveling and being at GPs a lot. And since that's happened, I've had to rethink the type of videos I want to do because I just don't have access to the type of people, uh, to the people that I want to do the type of videos that I have. But you know what I didn't do? I didn't start a Patreon for it. And right now it's, it's, there isn't one and there might not be one. Or if I can get some content rolling on it that I can produce again consistently, then I might explore that again. But I guarantee a ton of people just would have said, I've got a good thing going. I've got enough subscribers. I'm just going to go ahead and go for it here. Why not? And hey, do your thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm not even judging you for it, but to show you where I come from, I said no to money, right? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the bottom line here. I said, I'm not going to do that because it wasn't up to my standards of consistency, right? And I don't see any problem with that. And I'm glad because I got thrown a curveball, and all of a sudden all the GPs were gone. And that meant that I would have had on the hook a whole bunch of people saying, hey, I'm supporting you for this, but I want to get my content and me being like, I can no longer deliver it at the clip that I was before. And that I would feel awful. I wouldn't, I would have to shut down the thing or do something drastic. And I'm glad that I waited and made sure that I could actually do it. So hold yourself to those standards. That's my advice to you. Set your own standards, whatever they may be, and hold yourself to them. And it will work out better in the long run. And if you're thinking in terms of the long run, then you're going to do a lot better than if you think in terms of the short run for content. And I've seen it so many times. And I will again implore you that if you look at your favorite content creators, go back and look at when they actually started and when things started to go, right? I did the podcast for three and a half or four years before we saw a cent off of it. Mm-hmm. And, and when we did, it was nothing. Our first contract, our first sponsorship thing, we got $75 per episode. Right. And that sounded fine at the time. But remember, I mean, this is two people plus hosting plus like microphones and all this other stuff. I mean, we were just straight up losing money on it for that whole entire time, even after we got to that point. Right. And again, my mentality wasn't about monetizing it. So that wasn't really the point. Mm -hmm. But my point is, have you ever done anything for three years that required you to be at a certain place at a certain time every single week and do it when you didn't want to do it and when you didn't feel good and when you were sick and when you were out of ideas and when it wasn't that exciting and then also when it was and when you liked it and when you were excited and all these ups and downs and then when you had somebody leave and you had to replace them and then another one did and you had to be, <laughs> right? Have you ever done that and not gotten paid a cent for it? No, probably not, right? right. It takes that level of dedication to build it up to the point to get to the point where it can be, you know, part of your job or part of your career. So that's my advice is that you have to be willing to do those things if you want to really, truly build it up. But boy, the people that I think of that are like the top content creators and the people that have really put it in, they did, they put in their time, they built it up over time and then they saw the rewards uh, after that. Awesome. I mean, as Seth Godin said, there are no shortcuts. There are only long cuts. And uh, I think we tend to glorify... (laughs) Yeah, he's he's great. I mean, we tend to glorify. That's something I found too. It's just like if you look at even Magic players' stories or anything that worked out, we tend to shortcut it into like this is an overnight success. But after yeah. doing this and doing content myself for a while, I realized that there are no overnight successes, and there's a lot that goes into it. And uh, keeping your own standards is high. It's not only good for your own values and principles, but it's also credibility because you spent years and years building this up and if you give your fans false promises that can be gone overnight that that is actually something that can happen overnight basically you have to believe in it and you can't compromise on that 
Right. And, and, you know, I would urge people to like to be able to say why they believe in it. <laughs> I've heard a lot of people say, I really believe in this. And I look at it and I go, but it's kind of bad. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I know you're into it and you want this to work, but you didn't bother to make sure that this was great first. You just decided I want to believe in it. You got to believe in it for a reason, right? Like it's not just about sticking with it. It's also about saying, and, and it's good. You know, I'm adding something here. I'm, I, you know, I've thought this through. And, and I think, again, that just comes back to holding yourself to that standard. Yeah. I, I think what you're saying is be your own harshest critic and it's easier said than done, but you have to, you have to be, yes. you have to find ways yes. to get feedback and not be in an echo chamber as well. Exactly. Yeah. You're good at this, dude. <laughs> I, <think laughs> I don't know. Go places. <laughs> I, you know, I'm just getting started. So I'm hoping that uh, someday I can get to, you know, the levels that you and Luis have worked yourself up to. Well, I think you have a good shot at it with that mentality, man. Marshall, thank you so much today for the conversation. I, I learned a lot and I certainly hope our listeners did as well. And I just want to say thank you so much. Take care, be well, and I'll definitely be listening to more episodes of LR as I go. Thanks, James. Appreciate the opportunity.